You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, December 17th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Cuban embargo is about to end. President Obama has announced plans setting the foundation for eliminating this embargo between the United States and Cuba, separated by 90 miles of water, but oh, so much ill will. The embargo has been going on since October 19th, 1960, an incredibly long time when President Eisenhower first imposed it. It got strengthened. Originally, you could ship some medical goods. Now it's really nothing. So October 19th, 1960, four days prior to that, the Beatles first played with a guy named Ringo Starr. He sat in with them. Pete Best was the Beatles drummer for like a whole other year. Hawaii had just become a state two years prior to the embargo starting. Zero humans had ever been to outer space. There are 90 countries on the map today that weren't countries or were subordinate to controlling powers back then in 1960. Bob Dylan was living in Minnesota when the Cuba embargo started. Walmart wasn't a store. Hell, Kmart wasn't a store. Johnny Carson had not taken over The Tonight Show. So who's your James Bond? Connery, Roger Moore? No. In 1960, it was Ian Fleming because James Bond was only a book series, not yet a movie. There were some good things. You know, in the 1950s, I was reading up on Afghanistan. Women's rights were thriving in Afghanistan. The veil was declared a voluntary option. Women were pouring out of professional skills. Some things have receded on the Supreme Court. Felix Frankfurter was still on the Supreme Court. FDR appointee. He was born in 1882. That's how long the embargo has been in place. Raul Castro, who's the president of Cuba now, he was essentially defense minister. The defense minister for the United States back then wasn't even Robert McNamara yet. And Mr. Ed was only a planned TV show, not even a TV show in 1961. All right, so let's see. So we've mentioned the Beatles, Dylan, James Bond. Here's a great theme song. Let's see what music we're going to play today. There it is. It's OPP again, because this is Other People's Podcast Week. That's the OPP. It's really a Jackson 5 song. That's what makes OPP so good. But it is Other People's Podcast Week. And now, a great comic who has an unusual approach to podcasting. Dana Gould's episodes come out less than once a month, but there's little fat to them. They're all juicy, juicy steak. So whenever anyone asks me, who's my favorite comedian, I always answer, without missing a beat, the great Kippa Dada, which is so weird that Dana Gould is joining me now. (laughs) 
I am kidding. It is Dana Gould. He is the host of the Dana Gould Hour, which is a podcast I recommend, though it never lasts an hour, right? It's usually two hours or more, right, Dana? It's never run an hour, <laughs> and uh, I like to crank one out every five weeks. Uh-huh. But what about the podcast? <laughs> That'll be what I talk about when I'm in the home. <laughs> every five weeks, I crank one out. So this is what I like about uh, There is a thousand comedy podcasts. Some are confessional. Some are improvisational. But yours is the only one that has this special ephemeral quality that I like to call edited. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, committed to the illusion of entertainment. Right. I stole the idea of my podcast. A lot of it came from, there was a guy in Los Angeles, it might have been national, but I think it was basically Los Angeles, named Joe Frank. Not Joe Franklin. No, Joe Frank. Joe Frank. And Odin Kirk wrote for him, right? Yes, and, yeah, yeah, and he I, was very big here, and I mean, he's still around, but he was really at a big show here in the 90s that we all liked called In the Dark, and he would tell stories, and... He had a very hypnotic voice and had a really beautiful way of telling stories and unspooling these really Baroque tales. And he would have music loops underneath it, and it was just really compelling. And podcast came out, and I didn't want to do my version of Mark Maron's podcast. I thought, Mark's doing his podcast so well. Yeah. Why do I also have to do his podcast? And then later, Pete Holmes was doing his version of Mark's podcast yeah, every, pretty everybody, well. Yes. Everybody, and I just thought there's no reason to do it unless I have an idea. And then I sort of came up with my version of an original idea. Why don't I steal what Joe Frank did? I, I approach the show the same way I approach my stand-up. There's not a lot of waste. I like, you know, I like to choose my words carefully, and I use them. And and you know, if it's going to have your name on it, it might as well be good. I talk to people like, oh, I never edit it; I just record it and slap it out there. And I'm like, I I couldn't do that if I had to. I, I'm just too much of a control freak. Well, it seems um, weird to me because it's not as if comedians aren't neurotic and don't feel don't wouldn't hate it if uh, they were putting out content that wasn't landing. And when they're in a club, they don't want to do a whole bunch of stuff that people don't like. But when it comes to the podcast form, they seem to aggrandize the process. Look, we'll do an hour and a half of comedy. And if we get 15 actually funny moments out of it, then it's good. But I think you and I both agree. Actually, on average, it's not good. No. and Well, that was my whole thing with these comedians that would be like, he did seven hours last night. How much of it was good? <laughs> what if he just did 55 great minutes and left? Yeah. And the other great thing about a podcast is that's not to say that you can't have – it's very possible that you have a couple of really good hours. I mean, I'm sure when you wrote for The Simpsons, and I know that this was true because I've watched a lot of those DVDs, there's an extra two or three minutes every show that are great. It's just that you only had whatever it was, 23 minutes, and it would kill right. you to lose those extra three. So a podcast is great. You have all the stuff that's good. You don't have to lose the stuff that's good, but please, by God, take out the stuff that's bad. And then, I mean, I take it too far. I mean, I, my, you know, I, I've made every podcast the production of Smile. I mean, it's so, <laughs> it's so Baroque. And, and from what I, from what the feedback that I've gotten from people is that people enjoy it, so that that makes it worthwhile. But yeah, I wouldn't want. I, I there's, it's like a, you know, coming at it from the perspective of having written stuff. If it's not adding to the story, if it's not compelling, there's, if it's not leading into the next thing, there's no reason to have it. 
so I have no problem at all lopping out lopping out stuff. It's better to have, um, you know, fifty great minutes than seventy mediocre minutes. It is, and now, so you're the kind of comedian who gets grouped in a few categories, and one of those is alt comedy. And now old comedy, so it's... <laughs> it's old, old comedy. And so one of the characteristics of old comedy, and there were great things about it, and of course great comedians came out of it, but it was looser, uh, fewer rules, so you don't have to go gag punchline all the time, but also this specter of comedians coming on stage with notes written out that they put on a stool, and then they'll say this, so what else? And I just, I hate that part of it. I'm not, I don't think I'm asking too much as an audience member. That you don't no, do the so what else I, part. Well, I can say with, with a lot of authority, in terms of the West Coast comedy scene, mm-hmm. I was there at the birth of the notebook. <laughs> and the, the whole point was we were doing these shows, Ginny Garofalo, Bob Odenkirk, um, my, myself, some other people, uh, Kathy Griffin, uh, at this place called Big and Tall Bookstore. And uh, it was Janine's idea. Janine... You know, it's like we wanted a place to do new material, and you really couldn't do new material at the improv, even though that was originally the point of the improv, um, because it was, there was always a casting director there or somebody from The Tonight Show was there. And, if you, you know, it's like it wasn't really a workshop place anymore. It was a showcase place. So we wanted a place to bomb, to do material. So Janine knew this person, blah, blah, blah. We do these shows. And then we had a rule, which was you can only do new material. So... The point was, you have your notebook. The reason you had your notebook was because you had just written it, usually that day, because everybody put off having to do their material until about an hour before the show. Right. You don't go um, into comedy because you're great at meeting deadlines. Right. Yeah. It was not about not preparing. It was actually the reverse. It was about, you know, it's like working really hard and doing, you know, writing up a new said or talking about your day, and it became autobiographical simply by nature of the time crunch, but it did not have anything to do with don't learn your act. <laughs> you know, it was, it, was just, it was just the reverse, but then the notebook uh, became a bit of a trope. I look back on that period, as I've described it in other podcasts, a lot of people in suede coats writing on their hand. <laughs> so it was, like, it was pretty much the equivalent of the grunge scene in rock. It was, it was. I mean, it was. I mean, it was alternative more. It wasn't alternative comedy so much as it was It was people who dressed like they listened to alternative music. You know, it was, we all dressed like Weezer. So we, and since Weezer was an alternative band, we got lumped as alternative comedy. But yeah, I mean, just think if you had like put red flower pots on your head, you could have been, you know, math rock or Devo comedy. That's right. It was yeah, all exactly. depending on the Absolutely. sartorial choices. Yeah. Yeah. Jumpsuits could have, uh, but when you, you're a Boston guy, were you first doing comedy in Boston before you went west? I was a Boston comedian during the heyday of that, uh, France Alameda's documentary in the mid 80s. I started, I started doing stand up right out of high school in the, uh, in the, in the mid 80s. There was that big famous Chinese restaurant? The Ding Ho. Ding which Ho. Is actually <laughs> the first place I ever did a set. Oh, wow. You know, Boston was a great place to start off because it's a really rowdy town. And the audience was really rowdy, and you had to go up there and you had to get their attention really quickly. It wasn't indulgent to comedians at all. Do you think the Boston roots are maybe one reason why you don't like shagginess in the final product? Yeah, well, you certainly couldn't do it there. You know, you had to go up there and really get their fucking attention and work really hard. I mean, I saw Elvis Costello 
in like 1986, and he played for like 73 minutes. Mm-hmm. Bang, 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 bang. Then he left. It's like that's what you should do. Yeah. You know, I don't need four hours or a stop. I read a I read a paragraph from the Grapes of Wrath. Um, you know, he just like he just went in, ripped it out. Uh, took no prisoners and walked off stage. And I thought, that's what you should do. Yeah. I think Born to Run lasts like 44 minutes. Yeah. Done. And it has two really long songs. So take, yeah. that, into, take that into account. Yeah. As opposed to Wings Over America. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, so I'm astounded. You, your uh, most recent Dana Gould hours, you and Patton Oswalt, I think you two guys, to my mind, are the best in terms of uh, writing phrases, saying phrases that are, you know, the sentence, the value of the individual sentence is right. awesome. And it's true for every comedian. And Chris Rock is great at it too. But if I had to put my finger on what he does, obviously his words are great, but there's things about the ideas and the intonation. But with you guys, the value of a sentence, you're like uh, Philip Roth. You're like someone <laughs> who you read for the individual sentences. Now, yeah, I well, want that's very high praise indeed. Though. Absolutely. I want to know, though, when you're in the moment, you also have this ability to access seemingly fully formed phrases, not one or two words, but often, you know, three or four or five word phrases. Do you know what I'm talking about? And have you thought about how you do that? No, I I mean, uh, I do know what you think. I think what it is is just having, not to get too inside baseball, but if if you're a visual thinker, you know, you just kind of see them. I mean, they they kind of assemble themselves as you are talking, and you can you can spit them out. And you're as good as the person you're with. Like I'll be better at it talking to Patton because Patton's going to raise the bar, and you have to you have to keep up. And um, and a lot of it is just having a very sponge like encyclopedic encyclopedic you know memory and knowledge of whatever concept or subject that you're talking about. You know, I always go back to George Carlin, the way that he would really choose his words carefully and really knock out a great concept uh, in a very succinct manner. Right. I think, uh, I see, this is going to ruin it, but there was, in the Patton Oswalt episode, you just made an offhand reference to a slack, it was a Tex Avery reference. I look like a slack-jawed, droopy dog when the <laughs> anvil right. fell upon him, or something yeah. like that. I looked like the wolf when he found out the droopy. I looked like the wolf when he found out the droopy got the inheritance. I think. It was like... I, I, yeah, I look like the wolf when I found out that droopy got the inheritance. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, to me, is something that's like I said to myself, has he said that on stage before? Probably not, but it was still pretty impressive how you put the phrase together in such a specific way that if you've ever come close to seeing that cartoon, the audience knows exactly what you're talking about. I just had the image and I described the image. I didn't put the words together. I just was seeing, you know, you get the image in your mind and then you just describe it really quickly. Okay, so that's interesting. The tips of a good conversation. And the great thing is, if somehow you fumble it, you got a nice music bed to cover it up. On the I have a nice music bed and I go out and I cut it. <laughs> awesome stuff. This is 80% of what you what is cut from the show. Um, uh, uh. <laughs> You know, thing. And the last thing I want to ask you is, I know uh, you should be proud of the product. How about the process? Do you like doing it? Do you like the week of editing? It's a massive pain in the ass. (laughs) But I'm very proud of the show, and I wouldn't release it without the editing. 
editing sound can be really fun if you like when you make something work that seems difficult to work. And I do. I mean, I love. It's the kind of show. If I didn't make it, I would listen to it. It's. It's. It has the feeling of a good. Like uh, if if and if NPR. Uh, wanted to be entertaining. <laughs> so if they wanted to defy like their mission statement, is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, they don't know how to do comedy. They, If you say, I want to do comedy, they go, what is comedy? <laughs> no, 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 stop. <laughs> uh, they don't know how to do it. God bless them. Um, but Dana, do you really know how to cover protests in Hong Kong, to be fair? I, I, no, I don't. <laughs> so there you go. So we all have our strengths. Yeah. And, Dana, and I can't talk like this for too long a period of time. Radio is the most intimate medium, especially because we never raise our voices. I once heard, I literally turned on the radio, got in my car, started in my car, radio came on, and it was this. Welcome to Book Bag. Today, comfort me with apples. <laughs> like, I'll never forget the title of that book. It was like the most npr thing I've ever heard in my life. You're talking about Michael Silverblatt, right? The bookworm yeah. on KCRW. Yeah. Know that guy yeah. well. Free, freaky. He seems like he'll do an interview with the author and then, yeah. like, skulk around the author's garbage pal all day. Exactly. <laughs> I know. Ex- I've never met him. I know what he looks like. <laughs> it's like Overweight, exactly. flannel shirt, exactly. beard, wire rim glasses. And at I the end, lo- right. And at the end, it's like, oh, I'd like, to take an, uh, I'd like to take a picture with you and you'll have to sign this restraining order. It's yeah. pro forma. <laughs> Everybody's inner child looks like George R. R. Martin. <laughs> Except George R. R. Martins, who strangely looks like Susan Anton from the from the nineteen seventy nine sci fi <laughs> film Golden Girl. I was gonna go Leslie Uggams, but Nothing wrong it. with Leslie Uggams. No. <laughs> Dana Gould is the host of the great podcast, the Dana Gould Hour. You should check it out. Dana Gould Hour. I love the podcast. And my uh, yeah, if you if you like it and you want to see my stand up, it's on Hulu. There you go. Hulu. Put my name in. Something comes up. Thank you so much, Dana. Hey, man, anytime. I really enjoyed it. Oh, Hanukkah, oh, Hanukkah, come light the menorah. Let's have a party. But those lines at the post office are a horror. You don't have time to do that. What you need to do is use stamps.com instead. It's the best way to get your mailing and shipping done. I think maybe you could make it for the last day of Hanukkah. I don't know. Got to ask the shamus. Stamps.com isn't complicated. You use your own computer, use your own printer. You buy official U.S. postage. Any letter, any stamp, any time, the mailman comes to you. So there's a Stamps.com offer that I want to tell you about. Use the promo code THEGIST. Get a no-risk trial. You get a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in THEGIST. That's Stamps.com. Enter THEGIST. L'chaim. And now the spiel, Gould's Gold. So you've been hearing in the abstract how much I like Dana Gould and the Dana Gould Hour. Let's hear from it itself. Most of the show is conversation, but he does these like seven or eight minute takes on usually old Hollywood. It's a history lesson, some old movie clips, and uh, it's funny and it's always been informative. He's so knowledgeable about movies and interested in all the right things. His Bella Lugosi one was excellent. He did a thing about whatever happened to Baby Jane really good. And this is, I think my favorite. It's about the Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr. I remember I was talking to my girlfriend. This is years ago. My girlfriend's father was, uh, he ran a television station in Northern California. 
And uh, he had just like sat on a panel with Woody Allen or just some weird thing that was just very like cool intellectual mm. thing. At the same time, I get a phone call and it's my mother telling me that while the guys were hunting today, my brother shot a deer and winged it and didn't kill it. So my other brother chased it down, caught it, oh and holding it by its antlers, drowned it in a stream. <laughs> no! <laughs> and then, hang on, uh, somebody else is having lunch with Woody Allen. I'll get right back to you. <laughs> ah. Here's a manly thing that I don't get. Giving your son your name and then making him add junior to the end of it. Just a simple, easy way of ensuring your child go through their entire life feeling that they are, at best, nothing more than a lesser version of you. To men who would do this to their children, I say, get over yourself. You had an orgasm. It's no great achievement. Think about the life sentence that is the name Frank Sinatra Jr. How is that anything other than child abuse? It's as if John Lennon made his son perform in a band, but he forced them to call themselves the other Beatles. Good luck, guys. Now, there is one famous junior who wanted nothing to do with his father's name. In fact, he wasn't even born with it. He was forced to take it later in life just to put food on the table. Lon Chaney Jr., the star of the original The Wolfman. He was born Creighton Tull Chaney. Now, he was the son of Lon Chaney, who we will now call Lon Chaney Sr., who was known across the globe in the 1920s as the man of a thousand faces. Lon Chaney Sr. was one of the biggest movie stars of the silent era. So famous, in fact, that when he died in 1930, his passing did not just make the front page of the New York Times. It was the headline. Creighton Tull Chaney had some daddy issues, believe you me. In fact, he didn't even think about going into acting until after his dad was safe in the ground. The name Junior didn't come until studio heads at Universal convinced him that after years of struggling as Creighton, he could increase his income by about a million percent by changing his name to his dad's. So he did, around 1935. And he never forgave himself. Despite scoring a pretty big win as the simpleton Lenny in 1939's Of Mice and Men with Burgess Meredith, Lon Jr. spent his early career giving uninspired performances in uninspired westerns. Unlike his father, who was a flamboyant theatrical artiste, Lon Jr. fancied himself just a regular Joe, a ham and egger. He liked nothing more than drinking, wrestling, drinking, and drinking, and drinking. This might not have helped his liver much, but it did lead to the performance that would define his career. In 1941, Lon Chaney Jr. won the role of Larry Talbot, otherwise known to the world as the Wolfman. And he gave the role a sense of emotional heft that towered over any other performance he would ever give. Larry Talbot knew that when the moon was full, he was powerless over his actions, and he would wake up the next morning in disheveled clothes, not knowing what he did or where he'd been. For Lon, who waged a lifelong battle with very real liquid demons, the role fit him like a beer koozie. Now, when I was a kid, the Wolfman was my favorite monster. You see, unlike Godzilla or Frankenstein or even King Kong, who you could say are about anarchy, just smashing things, the Wolfman is about guilt, shame, and guilt. 
and I can relate. On the one hand, I was raised a very strict Catholic. And on the other hand, well, you can imagine what was going on on the other hand, hence all the shame and guilt. Now, if you haven't seen the original 1941 version of The Wolfman, or if you haven't seen it in a long time, you should give it a look. It's great. There are some goofy things. For one, in the movie, Larry Talbot is the son of an English nobleman, Sir John Talbot, played by Claude Rains. You know, Larry, but isn't it a sad commentary on our relationship that it took a hunting accident and your brother's death to bring you? That is Sir John Talbot. And now here is his son. Listen to Lon Chaney Jr.'s expert British accent. Well, it really isn't as bad as it sounds. I've watched every bit of news about you. I was mighty proud when you won the Belden Prize for research. My God, he sounds just like Ringo. The Wolfman is full of father-son conflicts. Here's a spoiler alert. It's Larry's own father in the film who kills his son in the end. But the movie made Lon a star. And over the course of the next few years, Lon Chaney Jr. played every monster Universal Studios had. Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy. And he brought to those roles pretty much nothing. His job in the Frankenstein and the mummy movies was to just walk around. And he did literally that giving the roles none of the silent poetry that Boris Karloff seemed to so effortlessly give them. But every time he played the Wolfman, which he did four more times in the 1940s, that oh-so-haunted look would return to those big, sad, rummy eyes, and he knocked it out of the park every time. Lon Chaney Jr. ended his career in schlocky B-movies, stuff like 1959's The Alligator People, where he has classic lines like, Dirty stinking slimy gators. You bit my hand off, didn't you? The hell? I'm gonna spend the rest of my life killing gators. The rest of my life. Seems like an odd thing to dedicate yourself to. I ain't never gonna stop shooting gators. You know what I think is a fun hobby? Doing puzzles. I ain't never gonna stop shooting gators. There's another great bit in here that I'm going to throw in, apropos of nothing. When the heroine of the film realizes the result of the mad scientist's evil experiments. Your patients are turning into alligators. Alligator people. Oh, alligator people. See, if they were just alligators, that would be fucked up. Lon Chaney Jr. died of heart failure in 1973. Because silent movies are not really enjoyed in the masses, he has easily eclipsed his father in the fame department. Although Lord only knows what was going on in that head of his. His friends describe him as a sweet, yet terribly sad man. The way you walked was thorny, through no fault of your own. But as the rain enters the soil, the river enters the sea. So tears run to a predestined end. Ah, the Wolfman. You gotta see it. <laughs> I ain't never gonna stop shooting gators! I know. I know. That's it for today's show. And just producer Andrea Salenzi was born. Alf wasn't on the air yet, but Alf Landon was still alive. Managing producer of Slate podcast Joel Meyer was born during a time before we knew what a Wookiee was. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate podcasts, existed here on Earth contemporaneously with the turgid blossom pearly muscle 
and the Arabian ostrich. Sadly, both are gone. Well, sadly, the ostrich is gone. The turgid blossom is just a few letters off from turd blossom. So I'm okay with that leaving. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. Get our daily email at slate.com slash just email. We are on Yo. Go uh, download Yo. Subscribe to podcast. It'll tell you when the show's ready to go. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email us at the gist at slate.com. I go so far back that I was around when Harry Truman was around, when Lyndon Johnson was around. I mean, I'm sure they were being wheeled around, but they were around. I predate the Kansas City Scouts and Atlanta Flames of the NHL. I predate Art Garfunkel's solo career. But I was alive when Bewitched was airing original episodes, though deep into the second Darren era. Thanks for listening. No wrapping required. Give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life and they'll receive all the benefits of membership. Bonus podcast segments, single-page articles, behind-the-scenes content, audio versions of your favorite articles, and so much more. Give Slate Plus today. Visit slate.com slash give plus. Hi, I'm Dan Coyce. And I'm Allison Benedict. On this week's Mom and Dad are Fighting, we talked to Slate's John Dickerson about the great Santa revelation and also about great gifts for kids to get them working with their hands and not just staring at a screen. Please search for Mom and Dad are Fighting on iTunes or visit slate.com slash podcasts.